Father, what truth. What life-changing, never-failing truth that is. That no matter what we're going through, whatever trials we're facing today, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And we always have reason to rejoice. To say, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Father, I pray now we would be humbled in your presence that those words would not just be words of a song that we sing but an anthem of the heart with deep praise and adoration and worship of our God and of our King Jesus Christ Father would you continue to meet with us today I pray you would remove any distraction in this place right now I ask, God, that we would cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. And we would, as Peter says, do well to pay attention to your word today, that we would have teachable and humble hearts to willingly come under its authority and to ultimately walk in the freedom that Christ came to give us. Father, may it be so. Guard my mouth from error today. Let every word be of you. Let not one word hit the ground and let it achieve the purpose for which it is sent. Help us to listen and to respond to you this morning. Say what you want to say. In Jesus' name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, last week we kicked off our final series for the summer from Psalm 118. We're going to be three weeks in Psalm 118, and this is week two. And I challenged us last week, and I'll do it again, that we, the summer might be coming to a close, but we're not just sliding into the end of it. We believe God has something to say to his church every week, and with great anticipation and expectation, the challenge is to press into him for what he wants to say to you. You and I are not here by accident this morning, and God has something to say. And if we're willing to humble ourselves under that, he will speak to us. Our series from Psalm 118 is called His Steadfast Love Endures Forever. And last week we looked at the first nine verses of the psalm, verses 1 to 9 in our message, uh, God's Love Will Endure, focusing on giving thanks for God's goodness, calling to Him in our distress, and seeking Him and trusting Him alone as our refuge. And this week... As we continue in the psalm, we're doing the next nine verses, verses 10 to 18, and this is an overflow now and a greater unpacking of what the psalmist has started in the first nine verses. And the focus is, because of God's steadfast or covenant, unbreaking love for us that endures, he will always deliver us in the trials we face as we seek him first and rely upon him. That's key, and we're going to unpack that. Psalm 18, verses 10 to 18. If you do not have a Bible in front of you, we want to put one in front of you, okay? So please put your hand up right now, because the ushers are coming forward right now. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, just put your hand up, and they will put one in front of you. We want you to be able to follow along, and if you do not have a copy of God's Word at home, please take that as a free gift from us to you. And you say, well, why is... The fact that God's enduring love for us as we seek him will deliver us in the trials that we face. Like, why is this so important that the psalmist would devote a huge chunk of this text to it? And it's this. Here's the importance of this universal truth. Ready? That you and I will face struggles, suffering, and trials. You and I will face trials and suffering. This truth has impacted and will continue to impact you, me, and every single person on this earth. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard this world tries to give us opportunities and and advancements in technology to avoid it, you can't escape that truth. You will face trials, you will face suffering. And you must face it again and again. 
and how we choose to face them or where we run to for deliverance through them will determine, loved ones, hear this this morning, will determine whether we are enslaved by them in fear or grow through them in faith. Where you run to for deliverance will determine whether those trials will enslave you or whether you will grow through them in faith. And the truth is this. We're just going to put this out here because it's going to be the foundation for everything we go through here. There is only one place that will give you true deliverance through your trial. I'll just tell you that right now. We're going to take out the guesswork. There's one place where you will get deliverance from your trial and that is in God alone through Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that will deliver. Okay? And... There are two questions here that determine how we go through our trials. Number one is, if we really believe that God will deliver us through our trials, here's two questions, litmus test, ready? Number one, do you believe that God can and will deliver you through the trial as you trust in him? Comes right down there, number one. Do you believe That trial that you're facing right now, not just in your head, but in your heart. Is it shown through your actions? Is it shown through your words? Do you honestly, genuinely believe that God can and will deliver you through that trial that you are facing as you run to him? And the second one is this. Totally crucial with it. Do you believe that God has a purpose for you in that trial? Or do you believe that what you're going through is just unneeded, unwanted, or an unuseful act of suffering? Do you believe God's got a purpose for you in it? And do you believe that he can and will deliver you through it if you trust in him? Tim Keller put it this way. You'll see it on the screen. He says, suffering is meaningful, loved ones. Just let that sink in for a moment. There's purpose Suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, that's the key. If faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail, picture this, deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. If faced rightly. Question, do you believe this? Your response to this question These two questions changes everything about how you go through trial and experience suffering. This is what the Israelites were confronted with right here at this point in Psalm 118. Now let's do a little contextual recall here. This is a psalm of thanksgiving and was written to celebrate God's steadfast love as the Israelites, picture this, were coming up to Jerusalem after a great deliverance the Lord had given them from their enemies. So it's this celebration coming back up to Jerusalem. And as the psalmist unpacks for us more about what the trial was they were facing that God delivered them from, that had brought them, as we'll see literally, to the point of death. This was no small thing. We see three essential truths we must embrace in our trials if we are to press into the Lord in faith and ultimately see his deliverance on our behalf. Three essential truths that we must embrace in our trials. Now to honor God's word, we're about to look at the text to honor God's word. Let's stand as we read for our text this morning. Psalm 118 verse 10 says, All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. 
The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And all God's people said, amen, amen. First point is this, you may be seated. The Lord will deliver me through my trial. I must rely on his strength through it. I must rely on his strength through it. Look at verses 10 to 12. All nations, the psalmist says, surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. Hear the panic? They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. See, the psalmist here continues to give his personal testimony of the Lord's deliverance in face of how bad the situation was. Did you see it building? See him building in his panic there? The word all nations that he's talking about. Who were these nations that he's talking about? These were all of the nations that were coming against Israel as their enemies and were surrounding. When he says surrounding there, the Hebrew word means to hem in. Okay, no escape. He's hemmed in. Ever felt hemmed in? Right? By the circumstances you face? No escape. Hemmed in on every side. Now notice this. Notice this. This is the beauty of Scripture. The psalmist repeats this three times and continues to build and heighten our anticipation of what the odds were that were against him and the power of the enemy they were facing. Notice in verse 10, he starts off, the enemy surrounded me. And now it gets bigger. Look at verse 11. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. You see what he's saying here? He's like, the odds are getting steeper here. The power of the enemy is increasing. And now he goes on again in verse 12. They surrounded me like bees. And you're like, like bees? What's that talking about? So let's take a couple pictures of what bees swarming around an object looks like. Those are two pictures of what it looks like that bees are swarming around an object. You see how they're just swarming in a circle around. This is the picture of what the psalmist is facing right now. The enemies are coming around him and surrounding him. You don't think he's a little freaked out? There's no escape. And what the picture is here that God is trying to relay to us through the psalmist is that this was an impossible situation. There's no way he was getting out of this by any means except by one who could do the impossible. There's no way victory's happening. Impossible. And notice there where he says, in the name of the Lord, he repeats it three times. Because he's like, I'm not going to take glory for this. I can't take glory for this because I had nothing against that enemy. He says, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Again, verse 11, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. In case we didn't get it the first two times, verse 12, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The psalmist states that he was only able to cut them off, and that means to destroy them by the strength and power of God alone and not his own. He had no hope without the Lord. Yet when God, notice what he says, yet when God moved, their enemies were quickly defeated like fire burning up thorns. Verse 12, they went, you see that? They went out like a fire among thorns. Impossible situation, you're being surrounded in the middle of this, I don't see a way out, and yet when God comes on the scene, those enemies are destroyed in a moment. Like fire taking out dry thorns. Think of the picture of dry wood going on the campfire. I smelt one last night on my prayer walk. There's a campfire going on. It made me think of this picture. When the dry wood hits the flame, it's over quickly. When God comes on the scene, and what it showed here is God was the real victor. Know this today. God is always the real victor. God is always the hero of the story. Not you, not me. He's always the hero. And because here's the truth. Pastor Ted told me this once at Harvest Brams. I'll never forget it. He says this. The truth is, is that when God is on your side, your enemies are always outnumbered. Amen? Amen. When God is on your side, your enemies are always outnumbered. And notice what he says in verse 13. I was pushed hard. This enemy's pressing in. Those bees are swarming. That enemy's coming around him. I'm pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The push, the Hebrew word there for pushed. It's not a little, huh, not a little shove. 
What he's talking about here is to violently push. The enemy's pressing it. You ever felt like that? Enemy's pressing it on you and he's pushing you violently. And the other term for that is tottering. So here's the psalmist. He's ready to fall, ready to fall, ready to fall. He's tottering and the enemy's coming in. Coming in for the kill and the psalmist is going down. But notice this confession, what is so key here. The psalmist confesses that the Lord allowed the enemy to push hard on him. Notice that? That's so key in the trials we face. The Lord is allowing it. It's not out from under his authority, loved one. Know that today, right where you are. Whatever you're going through right now, that sickness, that pain, that fear, that anxiety, is not out from under the authority of the one who is over it. And though your enemies may look like this, and your situation is in the enemy's coming to dogpile you, and Satan's throwing everything he can at you, know this. You may feel surrounded by your enemies, but God is the one surrounding your enemies. Amen? God is the one surrounding them. And he works so hard, the enemy works so hard to take our eyes off that fact. In the Lord's strength, even though he was about to collapse, couldn't go another step, he prevailed. Awesome. Okay, stop, full stop. That was just amazing what we just walked through. Amazing truth. Put yourself in the psalmist's position right here. You're in the middle of that swarm. The enemy is pressing in. He's surrounding you on all sides and it seems like there's no way out of that situation. What is that for you today? What is that swarm? That constant health crisis? That situation? The constant anxiety that the enemy's swarming around you in? The constant conflict with people? Just what is it the enemy's swarming around you with, dogpiling you with? And the fear and the anxiety and the worry and the doubt and the helplessness and the hopelessness were pushing in on you hard. And it feels like you can't take another step without falling. And your question is not, God, will you deliver me? Your question is, will I ever make it out of this? Will this ever end? I can't see any way through it. It is too much for me. You ever been there or felt that way, loved ones? You just felt like it's too much, it's too hard. Are you there right now? Question. What are you calling out to for deliverance in that trial? What are you calling out to for deliverance in that suffering? Your own strength? The psalmist just shows. He goes, there was no way I could get out of it in my own strength. Are you relying on your own strength? Are you relying on the wisdom of man? Are you relying on a procedure? Are you relying on other people? Are you relying on an addiction? Are you relying on your money? Are you relying on your job? Are you relying on corporate success? What is it that you are calling out to for deliverance? Saying, help me. Here's why this is so important that we recognize that. You'll see it on the screen. What we call out to first shows what we're dependent on the most. Simple truth. What we call out to first shows what we are dependent on the most. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says. And here we see the psalmist calling on the name of the Lord to deliver him. You say, well, wait a second. Why would he call on the name of the Lord? Why wouldn't he say, hey, guys, armor up. Get your swords out. Use this strategy and go this way and let's try this and let's try this. He calls on the name of the Lord specifically. Why? Because we have to understand right here. We have to understand what it means when we call on the name of the Lord. What is actually happening here and who it is we're actually calling on. The Hebrew word, okay, notice this. Nothing, every word inspired, every word preached in scripture. Amen? You notice there, look at verse 10. All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. How is the Lord spelt? All capitals. L-O-R-D, all caps. That is significant. That's a specific name. You'll see the Lord uh, spelled in different ways. Some have an uppercase L and then O-R-D is lowercase. That's a different name for the Lord as El Shaddai. This is the name Yahweh. 
This is the most sacred name of God, and it comes from the base of I am. When the Lord says to Moses, I am, tell them I am sent you, this is the name he's talking about. And you say, well, wait a sec, what's this all? Why would he call on the name? What does that do? Because we have to understand that the name of God represents the very nature of God and all that he is. Therefore, loved ones, to call on his name is to call on him for all of his power, his presence, and authority over that situation we're facing. To call on the name of God is to call on the nature of God. Because his name gives the truth of who he is. And you say, well, wait, let's break that down. Okay, so we just did a quick snapshot here. Seven things. Seven things that the name of the Lord represents. What we are calling on and who we are calling on. Seven truths of who God is. Ready? God says this. I am the one who has no beginning. I am the one who has no beginning. Nothing created him. We could just stop right there today. Like, nothing created him. There are people who say Jesus was created. Uh, Wrong. Nothing created him. Which means this. Look at the next one. Here's the second truth. I am the one who has no end. That means nothing can destroy him. Nothing created him. Nothing can destroy him. Bolstering our confidence in the Lord a little bit more now. Praise the Lord. Good. I I love to see the shoulders just go back. Yeah, that's my God. Praise the Lord. Okay? So, no beginning, no end. Here it is. I am, God says, totally independent. I depend on nothing. I am totally independent. I depend on nothing. I don't need anything. This is the nature of God. When you call on the name, this is who you're calling on. Now look at, look at, look at, gets better. Here it is. Four, he depends on nothing, but here's the reality. I am the one that everything depends on. Everything depends on him. Think about that. That breath you just took right now was dependent on the Lord. If he didn't give it to you, you wouldn't have taken it. Same with your enemy. See, that situation, and you ever notice this? That situation that you are in right now, that trial, that suffering you're in right now, is dependent on the Lord allowing it to happen. You see that? Everything's dependent on him. But it gets better. Here it is. All of the universe, just get your head around this, church. All of the universe, the heavens combined, is nothing compared to him. All of the universe and the heavens combined is nothing compared to him. Nothing in power, nothing in size, nothing in might. That's awesome. Number six, he's constant. I am the one who is constant. I won't change. Your circumstance may change. How you feel about me in that circumstance may change, but I don't change. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Number seven, he has full authority. He does whatever he pleases and is always loving, right, and good in how he does it. He has full authority and is always loving, right, and good in doing as he pleases. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can and will deliver you in that trial you're in right now? In those trials you will face? Do you believe he has a purpose? See, what we see here quickly is this. This is just a snapshot of seven things. What we see here quickly is that God is never intimidated by the odds of our situation. Just saying. God's never intimidated. He goes, whoa, uh, he's going through that hard time. I just didn't see that coming. What am I going to do? God is never intimidated by the odds of your situation. All right? And, And the reality is this, loved ones, God can do more in five seconds than we can do in five months, five years of struggling in our own pride. God can do more in five seconds in that situation than in five months or five years of struggling in our pride relying on ourselves. But the problem is this. The truth is, our default response is always to rely on ourselves. 
You ever notice that? Something happens like, okay, what do I have to do? You ever notice that? Our default response, okay, what needs to be done? What, do, what are things that I need to do next? And wh- who do I need to contact? Here's, here's the truth. When we rely on our own strength, we're believing the lie that our greatest hope is ourselves. Every time we start to rely on our own strength, we are believing the lie that our greatest hope is ourselves. Now just stop for a moment and think about that. Like, talk about pressure. You know, we always get these messages, don't put pressure on yourself. You're putting a lot on yourself in that moment. Talk about pressure. The idea of it's all on me to deal with it. Well, no wonder then, no wonder that it leads to anxiety in the trial we face. It leads to fear in the trial we face. It leads to, to uh, worry in the trial we face. It leads to doubt. It leads to hopelessness. It leads to helplessness. That's because your dependency is on the wrong person. It's on the wrong thing. See, because here's the truth about this, loved ones. Anxiety, worry, doubt, and fear, they only can happen. Know this, know this. Take courage in this today. They can only happen when our dependency is on anything else but God. That's the only way anxiety can happen, is when you shifted your dependency, which is to be on the Lord for deliverance, to someone or something else. Your grades, your job, getting a spouse, having a baby, getting whatever it is, you've shifted it. It won't deliver you. It can't. So ask yourself the question when you start to feel anxious. Here, right here, a little tool for you. When you start to feel hopeless, when you start to feel helpless in the suffering, in the trial, ask yourself the question, I'm feeling anxious right now. God, what is it that I'm shifting my dependency on that's not you? What lie am I believing that's going to satisfy me that isn't you? You ask that question and you humble yourself unto the Lord in that, the Lord's like a gardener who takes his rake to you and digs into the soil and rips out the root of anxiety. That's what he does. The fear, the helplessness. Because, loved ones, there is only one source of true deliverance that we can have in this world, God Almighty himself through Jesus Christ. And he promises to only act, love this, he promises to only act out of a steadfast love for his children and work for our good and his glory when we call on his name in our trials every time. Every time. Unconditional love for his children. God will deliver me in my trial. I must rely on his strength through it. And as we rely on God's strength, it leads us not to the anxiety of having to trust in ourselves in the trial, but to rejoicing in the hope that we have in him in it. Look at verses 14 to 16. The Lord, looking back now, the Lord is my strength, the psalmist says, and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs. See the tone change? Glad songs of salvation are in the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Just picture him in front of all the people. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. See the Hebrew word there in verse 14, the words for strength and song. When the Lord says, or, or when the psalmist says, the Lord is my strength and my song. Strength, the Hebrew word for that is power. Okay? And song is praise or worship. So let's reinsert it back into the verse to get a clear picture. He says, the Lord has become my power, that is my strength, and the one I will worship in my trial because he alone can save and deliver me. That's what it means when you say the Lord is my strength and my song. I'm going to worship him through this trial because he's my strength. I can't do it on my own. And I choose in faith to worship him. And with his strength and reliance fully on the Lord, the psalmist now moves into that place of rejoicing as he reflects on what God has just done and how God's, I love this, and this has implications for us. He reflects on how God's children can be confident in his promise to them to work valiantly. You know what that word valiant means? This is a word that I love to toss around with my boys around the dinner table. Valiantly. 
It means courageously, powerfully. You have a steadfast, loving God who has authority over that situation. Who's like, hey, you call on me. I will work powerfully in that. I will work courage. You want to see courage? I'll show you courage. I will work valiantly because I love you. I love you. Nothing can touch it. And then notice what he says. He doesn't just stop at working valiantly on behalf of his people. Look at what it says. He says he will exalt them. You know what that means? It's not, hey, get the glory for yourself. Uh -uh, uh Uh-uh-uh-uh. The Hebrew word there means to lift up. How many of you need to be lifted up this morning? Me? How many of you needed to be lifted up? He says, he will exalt them as they humbled themselves. That's key. Humbled themselves and set their hope in him alone for deliverance in the trial they faced. He will work valiantly and he will exalt you. But here's, here's the thing about someone lifting you up. You know what it means? You have to be low. God will not and cannot bless pride. Picture nature. I was out for a walk the other day. Where does water flow to? Does water flow up? No. Sweet. No fair though. We talked about this. Water always flows to the lowest place. Jesus Christ, the living water, will always flow to the lowest place. First Peter 5, 6, and 7 says this. You'll see it on the screen. He says, humble yourselves, loved ones. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time... Hey, know this, loved one, be encouraged. There's a time for that, season, or that trial you're in. There's a time allotted for that suffering you're in. The one who has authority over that has allotted it out of his love for you and goodness towards you so that at the proper time he may exalt you, lift you up. Here it is, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Did you ever consider this? My wife and I were talking about this this week. Casting our anxieties on the Lord is an act of humility. Do you think about that? When we cast our anxieties on him, that is humbling ourselves. That's why Peter puts them together. That is humbling ourselves under and saying, I can't do this. I surrender it to you. And then God can start to go to work. Why? Because here it is. Humility before God, you'll see it on the screen. Humility before God is the start of our hope of being in God. Humility before God is the start of our hope being in him. Every time, in every situation. Water always flows to the lowest place. I love how Matt Chandler puts it this way. See it on the screen. The engine that drives all your activities is hope. What you hope in shapes you. You realize that? What you hope in shapes you. Hope is the engine that drives all your activities. If your hope is in another person, of course you're going to feel anxious when they let you down. If your hope is in a procedure to go through that health crisis, of course your hope is going to be crushed every time it doesn't work. Hope is the engine that drives all your activities. What you hope in shapes you. And shapes your outlook on what God can and will do in that trial if you surrender it to him. No, notice here something else very significant. The Hebrew word used for salvation here. Verse 14, the Lord's my strength, his power, my song, my worship. He has become my salvation. What's the Hebrew word there for salvation? Here it is, ready? Yeshua. Awesome. Yeshua, which means this. That is the Hebrew name for Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Yes. He has become my salvation, my Yeshua, my Christ. God's only son who came to earth, lived a perfect life and was crucified on a cross to pay the full penalty for our sins. And he rose again. Hear this this morning. He rose again three days later for you because he loves you. That you would no longer be enslaved to the fear and anxiety that the enemy, our real enemy, tries to cripple us with 
in the trials that we face. And as we confess him as our Lord and Savior and repent of our sin, and I say, I can't do it anymore, white flag goes up, our knees go down, and God says, now you're ready. Let's go. Awesome. Awesome. John 10.10. 10. The thief, that is the devil, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Yes, right in the middle of that trial you're facing, right there. I came for that. But will you receive me to see it happen? This is, honestly, loved ones, right here, we're going to do a full stop. Because this is the most important question of your life. Right now I'm about to ask you, seriously, you'll never have a more important question than this. Ready? And it is this. Eyes up here for a moment. I want to see, I got everyone. I love your notes. I want to see everything. Has Jesus Christ become your salvation? Have you been saved by Jesus Christ and confessed him as your Lord and Savior? That is the most important question of your life. And whether you deal with it now, you will be dealing with it in the future, I guarantee it, when we stand before him face to face. Has he become your hope? Have you humbled yourself before him and confessed him as your Lord and Savior. If not, if not, loved ones, hear this. There's so much hope. He loves you so much. There's so much hope here today. If not, this is where everything starts from you because the reality is this, and hear this. You can try to search for it. You can go to all these other books and all these other theories, but at the end of the day, we're gonna find out very quickly there is no hope apart from him. There is no hope apart from the source of all hope, the one who is hope, Jesus Christ. All you have to rely on are things that cannot deliver if he's not your hope. Your job, your bank account, your health, all of which can be taken away in a moment. That's all you have to rely on. Your own abilities, which will bottom out every time. And if you have confessed him as your savior, here's a question for you, ready? Loved ones, brothers, sisters, does your life reflect that that he is your salvation and hope in how you rejoice in the hope secured for you in him and the trials you face. Because when we are in Jesus Christ, we always have reason to rejoice right in the hardest moment. And I'm not minimizing anything that anyone is going through. This is hard and it's a supernatural work. That's why we need a supernatural savior. You see, the reality is most Christians will claim the name of Christ, but we live in the name of self when it comes to our trials. We claim the name of Christ, but we go through them in the name of self. And instead of rejoicing in the hope that we have in Christ in our trials, most Christians will live their lives enslaved to the very things that Christ came to set them free from. They will walk through that trial and go to the addiction, the fear, the anxiety, the doubt, the hopelessness, the helplessness every time instead of rejoicing in what God has done for us and in faith walking in his peace, his comfort, his joy. Yes, joy right there and his strength and his love for you. I have to qualify that as this. Ready? This doesn't mean that we ignorantly pretend like the trial we're going through isn't real and that we're not impacted by it. It's not say, oh good, I'm going through this really hard thing by hopes in Jesus. Listen, there's a reason why Isaiah 56 says he holds their tears in a bottle and all of, his, all of their sighs are written in his book. There's a reason he says he's the God of all comfort. There's a reason Psalm 34, 18 says he is near to the brokenhearted and to the crushed in spirit. So we're not minimizing that. We're not ignorantly trying to avoid that and using Christ as some crutch. 
But what it does mean is that as we humble ourselves before the Lord in the middle of that suffering, in the middle of that trial, we can be reminded of his love for us and his faithfulness to us in the past. Looking back, he reminds us, see what I did there? I brought you through this. I love you here. I gave this. I helped you here. And we can rejoice in the hope that our affliction is momentary and that he has promised to deliver us through it now in here it is, in his time and in his way for our good and for his glory. He's allotted it a certain time and he will deliver you through. See, here's the thing about rejoicing in remembrance of what God has done. You'll see it on the screen. God's call for remembrance of him and what he's done in the past is always a call for rejoicing in him in the present. I don't see, I feel swarmed. I don't see how you're going to deliver now, God, but I saw what you did in the past and you can be my strength and my song and my salvation. I'm choosing to worship you in this storm right now. That's a supernatural work. Does this describe how you face the trial right now? Loved ones, we can't white knuckle this, but this can describe you. And we have a Savior who has promised to support us to be there. The question is, God's part is totally secure, but will you humble yourself under him to receive it and stop fighting it on your own? The Lord will deliver me in my trial. I must rely on his strength through it. I must rejoice in my hope in it. And lastly, loved ones, as we remember the hope we have in him, we are then in a place to receive his discipline from it. From it. Look at verses 17 and 18. The Lord will deliver me in my trial. I must receive his discipline from it. I shall not die, the psalmist says, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. See, there's the remembrance again. I will recount what he's done. The Lord has disciplined me severely but he has not given me over to death. See, the word, the Hebrew word for recount there means to tell, declare, or to proclaim what God has done in the past. The psalmist states here that he would continue to tell of the deeds that the Lord has done in delivering him from the trial so that others could hear of God's love and faithfulness towards his people. You ever get that? When you give a testimony of what God has done in your life, happened to me about three times this week. I'm talking to people and they're telling me what God's done. That fires you up in faith. To be mutually encouraged, Paul says, in each other's faith. But here's what he also sees. Yes, God has done that. I'm going to continue to tell the next generation. But the psalmist also sees how the Lord had disciplined him through the trial. Yet in his authority, he did not give him over to death. Okay, it's time to get a sound biblical theology on godly discipline here. Okay, this is so crucial. So crucial. The word discipline in Hebrew, ready, means to correct or to train You notice what it doesn't mean there? To punish. There's a huge difference. God's discipline is not to punish you. God's discipline is to train you and to correct you in love. God's motives, the heart of God's discipline of his people is not vengeance. It's not harsh. It's love of a father, a good father, to a child. The psalmist says that even though God's discipline of him through the trial was severe and it hurt, it was painful, he says. God's purpose for it was out of love for him and for his good to show him that God alone is what he needed in the trial and that in him alone that psalmist was secure. In him alone. That's the purpose of godly correction and discipline. See, here's what we have to understand. When we go through the trial, when we go through the suffering, God's discipline of us in that trial is part of God's deliverance for us through it. Always. God's discipline for us in that trial is always part of his path of deliverance for us through it. Always. His correction, his training 
of it. And we must understand, loved ones, that God's discipline is not like what we think of as discipline in this world. It is completely countercultural. When you hear the word correct, who likes to be corrected? Your pride goes up, you get your back against the wall, and, and who likes to think about discipline? People run from that, they want to avoid it. When God's like, I love you, humble yourself under it, and watch what I do to deliver you from what you are enslaved to. Hebrews 12, 6, 10 to 11 is perhaps one of the single greatest passages and truths on the discipline of the Lord and its purpose. He says this, For the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our, everyone say, for our good that we may share his holiness for the moment. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peace. What's God's discipline for? Not for vengeance, but for peace. The peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by us. Okay, quick summary of that truth. Here it is. God disciplines us because of his love for us, because of his goodness to us, right out of the verse, because for his holiness in us, for his presence with us, for his peace in us, and for training us. Listen, loved ones, God's discipline of you and me is never for our destruction. It's always for our deliverance and our development into Christ-likeness. Always. That's why God disciplines his children. Not for destruction. For deliverance and for development into Christ's likeness. And too many of us just want the blessing of the deliverance without the blessing of the discipline that must come with it. God's discipline is a gift to us. And every time a person is brought face to face, this is the moment, this is the crossroads. This is why the psalmist finishes the section with this. This is the crossroads. Every time a person is brought face to face with God's discipline, it is a crucial point or crossroads in their life, you either run from it and stay enslaved to your pride or receive the correction of God, whether through someone else under God's word, whatever it is. Humble yourself under it and walk in freedom through it. And I got to tell you, loved ones, I have sat in my office more and more times weeping and grieving because the number one place where people will stop moving forward in their walk with God is right here. They don't want to receive correction of the Lord. They don't want to receive his loving discipline and they choose to stand back in pride and hold on and avoid it. Instead of embracing the discipline of the Lord in the trial, they reject it. And so often our prayers, you ever notice this? Our prayers in the trial, maybe if you're anything like me, our prayers can become, Lord, change my circumstance. Give me, if you just give me what I'm after, just change my circumstance. Remove the discipline. Instead of someone, a testimony of someone who has their hope in the Lord and says, Lord, don't change my circumstance. Change me in the circumstance. Change me. Change me. Change me to be more like you, to know your love, to know your presence, to know your strength. Because we have to realize, you'll see it on the screen, loved ones, to reject God's discipline of you is to reject his love for you. It is a gift. And it's painful. But God, Tozer said this, God will not bless a man greatly until he has wounded him deeply. Because if he gave you what you want before you were ready for it, it'd be like me giving my keys to my seven-year-old son and saying, go take the car. That's, that's a death warrant. If he gave you what you're asking for before you've been disciplined and corrected and trained to receive it, boom. Game over. Watch the idols of your heart spring up like nothing else. And why is his discipline a gift? Because coming under it always leads us to walking in God's direction for our lives. It increases our faith in him, our dependency on him, our love for him. And God, if you're in that place today, I'm in that place today. If you're in that place today, know this. There's an allotted season for it. And God will often withhold what we want 
so that he can give us what we need. God will often withhold what we want so that he can give us what we need and what we need is him. And I can promise you this, last screenshot here for the day. I promise you this, loved ones. When it comes to God's discipline, humble reception of it always leads to grateful reflection for it. When it comes to God's discipline, humble reception of it will always lead to grateful reflection for it. It may take some time to come to heal, but as you look back, it will come and you will say thank you. So where are you rejecting God's discipline right now, saying, forget it, God, I want to do things my way. I want to get what I want. I'm not going to listen to that correction, whether it's coming through someone else who fears you, your pastor, your friends that fear the Lord and love you, and where you're saying, I just want my way. You're rejecting it. And I will say this, stop fighting it. Repent and humble yourself under him. Start receiving it and do this. Don't waste the trial. Don't waste the trial. It is through Jesus Christ alone we are given the endurance, faith, peace, and joy to receive God's discipline and believe that he will not have us there one second longer than is necessary for us. Know that, loved ones, in his love for you and to know in faith that he will deliver us from our trial as we rely on his strength through it, rejoice in our hope in him in it, and receive his discipline from it. He will deliver us every time guaranteed. Let's pray. Father, uh, personally, this has been a hard message to prepare. But Lord, your, your word is so true. And looking back, we can see that your discipline was not to destroy us. It was not out of vengeance. It was not out of harshness. But it's to correct us and to train us, not to punish us. Father, you love us so much that you are willing to withhold what we want to give us what we need. Thank you. And God, I don't know where everyone is here today, but I pray that those people who have come here in that place, that place of trial, the place of suffering, the place of fear, God, I ask in Jesus' name today they would have great hope to believe that you are able to believe that you, if they are in Jesus Christ, you, God, are for them and will deliver them and you will make a way. So God, would you, even right now, in the quietness of this place, expose those areas of our hearts where we are trusting in other saviors, small g gods, putting our hope for deliverance in those things that cannot deliver. And we would be quick to repent right now, right now. Where have we not received your correction? Where are we not? And God, we would start to walk in the freedom that Jesus Christ has come to set us free from those things. Thank you that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will never fail us. Press this word into our hearts. And as we sing this last song, believe from the anthem of our heart that you are able to do more than we could ask or think through this. In Jesus' name. Amen.